I'm reading this morning from 2 Kings chapter 2, beginning in verse 10. 2 Kings 2.10 Then David slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. And the days that David reigned over Israel were forty years. Seven years he reigned in Hebron, and thirty-three years he reigned in Jerusalem. And Solomon sat on the throne of, his, of David his father, and his kingdom was firmly established. Now Adonijah the son of Haggith came to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, and she said, Do you come peacefully? And he said, Peacefully. Then he said, I have something to say to you. And she said, Speak. So he said, You know that the kingdom was mine, and that all Israel expected me to be king. However, the kingdom has turned about and become my brothers, for it was from the Lord. And now I am making one request of you, do not refuse me. And she said to him, Speak. Then he said, Please speak to Solomon the king, for he will not refuse you, that he may give me a Bishag the Shunammite as a wife. And Bathsheba said, Very well, I will speak to the king for you. And when I'll pray. Heavenly Father, we, as we do um, every time we look at your word, God, we come to you for wisdom and understanding that we might know you and your ways and by faith walk in them. So we just again pray that you would work in our hearts and minds, God, to hear your voice and to respond to you and to love you and to obey you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. As David said would happen, he was going to go the way of all the earth. He went the way of all the earth and David died. He was buried. We have a brief summary that he was 40 years as king, seven years in Hebron, 33 years in Jerusalem. And then the throne is handed over to Solomon. And then it would appear very shortly after um, Solomon is made king officially. It was actually the second time that he was made king. Um, the first time while his dad was still alive and then here at the, after his dad has passed away. That now um, Adonijah, that older brother who tried to take the throne but was thwarted right at the last moment, he comes back on the scene. And this time he approaches Bathsheba. And you remember he wanted to kill Solomon, Bathsheba, Nathan the prophet, Benaniah, and all the mighty men that stood with David. They were all going to lose their lives. And this is just a short time later, no more than a year, probably just a few weeks, maybe months, that he appears at um, uh, Bathsheba's doorstep, rang the doorbell, ding dong, opens the door. Oh my word, Adonijah. And so understandably, she asked the question, do you come peacefully? Because this is the same guy who was going to kill her. And he said, peacefully. And then he says, I just have something to ask you. Could you help me out with this? Could you do me a favor? And she said, speak. And he said, you know that the kingdom was mine and that all Israel expected me to be king. There's some truth to that. However, the kingdom has turned about and become my brothers. Yes, that is true. And then he says, for it was from the Lord. And he gets so spiritual. 
And her guard immediately drops. Because the man is repentant and he's talking about God and, and, and God wanted it to happen. And I'm at peace with what God did. And there's no problem here. But I was going to get everything. So I'm just asking you, Bathsheba, could you ask Solomon if I could just have one thing? Abishag, Miss Israel, the most beautiful girl in all the country. Can I have a consolation prize? Could I have the crumbs that fall from the table? And Bathsheba sees no problem with it. And so she says, yes, I will speak to the king for you. Now, we don't know why she gave in so readily to this. She clearly does not see a problem. And maybe she's just thinking this has nothing to do with anything except a beautiful girl is being desired by a man. And maybe Bathsheba is going, I know how that works. I was just minding my own business one night, my, you know, just bathing on the rooftop. And the next thing I know, I'm in the king's bed. Like father, like son, the, the, rock, the, the, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. So she goes, sure. And with no more thought about it, she goes into the king. Verse 19. So Bathsheba went to King Solomon to speak to him for Adonijah. And the king arose to meet her, and he bowed before her, and he sat on his throne, and he had a throne set for the king's mother, and, he sat on his, on, and she sat on his right. Then she said, I am making one small request of you. Now, if you'll notice, she's added the word small. So she's been thinking on this, and she's come to the conclusion this is not a big deal and Solomon should have no problem with it. I am making one small request of you. Do not refuse me. And the king said to her, Ask my mother, for I will not refuse you. And so she said, Let Abishag the Shunammite be given to Adonijah your brother as a wife. Small request. And Solomon goes berserk. And the king King Solomon answered and said to his mother, And why are you asking Abishag the Shunammite for Adonijah? Ask for him also the kingdom, for he is my older brother, even for him and for Abathar the priest and for Joab the son of Zariah. See, there's a conspiracy going on, and Solomon sees right through it, and he says, I might as well hand the throne over to them, mother. Whoa. Verse 23. Then King Solomon swore by the Lord, saying, May God do so to me, and more also, if Adonijah has not spoken this word against his own life. By this time, Bathsheba's hair must just be blown back. <laughs> now, therefore, as the Lord lives, who has established me and set me on the throne of, of David my father, and who has promised me a house as he promised, surely Adonijah will be put to death today. Whoa! So King Solomon sent Benaniah the son of Jehoiada, and he fell upon him so that he died. It's just one small request. Talk about an overreaction. But Bathsheba doesn't get the significance of the request. At this time in history, and it's still true today, wherever polygamy is practiced, I probably have said something about this already, but 
A man multiplied wives like a wealthy person today would multiply houses and cars. Boats, yachts, houses, cars, planes. Well, in this day, they would multiply women. And the women were a sign, an expression of power. So the greater your power, the more wives you took. This explains why Solomon had 700 wives, because he is the most powerful king on the earth at the time. And so there are, I have no question about it. I think they probably sent messengers out and they surveyed all the kingdoms of the earth to see who had how many wives. And message came back. Nobody has more than 600. And Solomon goes, well, then I'll have 700. Whatever the top number was, Solomon was going to beat it because he's telling everybody, I am the most powerful king on the earth. And everybody recognized that. Weak men... Poor men did not multiply wives. Find a prophet in the Bible with two wives. Find a priest in the Bible with two wives. The average man on the street was not practicing polygamy. Simple math would tell us that they weren't because there's not enough women to go around. The birth rate is always 50-50. So it was only the rich and the powerful, kings and other people who lived at that level of society who were multiplying wives. It was the exception, not the rule. That's the way it's always been in human history. So to give away, if your wife represents power, to give away your wife was a very simple way of saying, the man that I just gave my wife to is the better man. He is the one who ought to be king. You remember when David ran from his father-in-law Saul and he left his wife behind, Michael. And the first thing that Saul did was give her to another man. That was a very simple way of Saul telling the nation, David is a nothing. I am the man in, in power. I have the power to take another man's wife and give her to whoever I would wish. There was just nothing more than just a bold statement of power on Saul's part. When David fled from Absalom after he became king and left behind ten concubines to take care of the palace. And Absalom consulted with David's advisors and said, what should I do now that I've taken over the city? And the one advisor said, you take those ten concubines up on the roof in full view of all of Jerusalem and sleep with them. And that way all of Israel will know who's in charge. It was a statement of power. Now, one thing that's lost on us, and you can flip over to 2 Samuel chapter 12 to see this, and that is that in this culture also, when a king died, all that he had, all that he had that expressed his power, his money, his homes, his vineyards, his flocks, and his wives, went to the next king. So it says in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 8, this is God speaking through Nathan the prophet to David. And he says, I also gave you your master's house, meaning everything he owned, and your master's wives into your care. What happened to Saul's wives after Saul died? They all became David's wives. Now, that doesn't mean that David slept with them. He did not. But they all come under the control of David. None of them are free to remarry. 
This is why Adonijah has to have Solomon's permission to marry Abishag. She's a widow. Widows have the freedom to remarry. Not these widows, because they belong to the next king. And so Adonijah can't go straight to Abishag and say, would you marry me? Because Abishag belongs to Solomon. She is counted as one of his women. So she cannot remarry unless the king permits her. And to give her away would be the same thing as saying, you might as well take the throne. I tease and I say, you know, I'm a little guy and I'm old. But if I happen, this would be a miracle, be sitting on the beach with my wife, um, because I don't do that any, anymore. Um, I'm afraid that I would be arrested for creating a public disturbance. Um, <laughs> Because my legs are so white, you know, I just blind everybody on the beach and airplanes would fly, fall out of the sky and all kinds of things. So, um, but if I happen to be on the beach with my wife and some man walks by and looks at my beautiful wife and says, mm, grabs her by the wrist, pulls her to her feet and starts just dragging her down the beach. And if I just stay in my chair and keep reading my Louis L'Amour novel, You're going to think, what is wrong with Charlie? Do something. Just chase him down, tackle him, jump on his back, claw his eyes. Do something. What kind of man would just willingly let another man have his wife? A weak man. A non-man. In 1 Kings chapter 20, the king of Syria comes to the king of Israel, who happened to be Ahab at the time, and he actually just says to him, just straight up, he goes, give me your most beautiful wives and your children. And Ahab actually said, okay. And then the guy goes, well, that was easy. So the king of Syria says, well, I'm actually going to come to your capital city and I'm just going to walk through and everything I see I'm going to take. Well, Ahab couldn't agree with that. He could agree with letting his wives and children go. <laughs> he said, no, you're not going to come here and just walk around and take whatever you want. And so he resisted, and long story short, God gave deliverance. But it was very clear to take the man's wife was a way of saying, I am taking your authority and your power. This was the culture of the day. Really leaves me wondering why Bathsheba didn't understand what was behind the request. The first time Bathsheba's mentioned in the Bible, she's bathing on a rooftop. Go figure. The next time Bathsheba's mentioned in chapter 1 of 1 Kings, the, she's about to be assassinated and she has no clue. Go figure. And then the third time, and this is the last time we see her, she is about to hand the throne over and doesn't realize what she's doing. So after much research, I don't know what other conclusion you can come to here. <laughs> and I, you know, I hate to offend anybody. I really do. But this woman has got to be. <laughs> I, I'm afraid to even say it because she's got to be blonde. I don't know. I mean, now I would love to tell. Some blonde jokes at this point. 
But some, it, usually it's a brunette that takes offense when I give a blonde joke. I, I don't think I've yet ever had a blonde take offense at any of my blonde jokes. Maybe because they don't understand what I'm saying. <laughs> but, uh, but because they won't take offense or they won't know what's going on and nobody else, I'm, I'm sure you won't take offense. I, I can't, you know, I just, do you know, do you know why, blondes, why blondes smile during lightning storms? Because they think their pictures are being taken. You heard of the three co-eds who were stranded on a desert island. One brunette, one redhead, one blonde. And they've, by their good fortune, they found a, a magic lamp. And they rub the lamp. Jeannie pops out, sees three women, and says, well, this is the way it works. You don't all get three wishes. You all get one wish. And so make it good. And so the redhead, she goes, oh, man, I just wish I could be back with my sorority friends. Poof, she's gone. Brunette says, I just want to go home. I wish I could go home. Poof, she's gone. The blonde says, I wish my friends could be with me. <laughs> Brenda's back there going like this. To <laughs> You heard about the blonde that invented a... <laughs> it's hard to stop. I'm on a roll. You heard about the blonde that invented a wheelchair with pedals. Okay, enough of that. Which leads me to a very serious question. There is an application here. The Bible, in all seriousness, tells us that not many wise are called, but God calls the foolish. And one of the things, reasons I think we like you know, jokes that make fun of people a little bit is because we know in our heart of hearts we all have foolishness in us, and none of us are exempt from playing the fool. And some people are, by nature, more trusting, more gullible than other people are. I put myself in that camp. I'd like to think that I'm wise and discerning, but I've been taken advantage of too many times to know that that is not always the case. None of us are, by nature, wise and discerning. We are, by nature, fools, because sin lives in us. Folly is in us all. Proverbs says that the so this is Father's Day. We are, the father is to discipline his child in order to drive the folly out of his heart. We are born with foolishness in, in us. We also understand that the nature of love is not to be cynical. The nature of love is not to be distrusting. But the nature of love, love, we're told in 1 Corinthians 13, believes all things. Meaning that it assumes the best. And it hopes all things. And the opposite of hope would be you're cynical. So it's not all bad that Bathsheba is so quick to trust this man. It would, if anything, indicate that she has a loving heart and she's willing to forgive. Jesus was never cynical. Oswald Chambers points that out. 
It says that he knew what was in the heart of all men and he did not entrust himself to men. But then Chambers follows up with the statement, yet he was never cynical. And that's something we all have to guard against. We can be taken advantage of so many times, deceived, led astray so many times that we've just become cynical about this world. And that is not where God wants us to go. So how do we become wise and discerning people? Well, I think one of the things to understand is that when a person repents, and maybe Adonijah genuinely repented. I don't think so, but it, he gave all the signs of it at the end of chapter 1, where he laid hold of the horns of the altar, and, and he bowed himself, prostrated himself before the king. It sure looked like repentance. But giving him the benefit of the doubt, which Bathsheba did, he is truly repentant. Does that mean he should be trusted? Different subject. I've used this illustration. Maybe it's too graphic. Um, I've officiated a lot of weddings. I've never had the unfortunate experience, and I'm thankful for this, of a bride coming to me on the day of the wedding and saying, you know, my fiancé and his friends had the bachelor party last night. And I found out today that in the course of that bachelor party, he got drunk and he slept with one of the bridesmaids. And he is terribly broken and repentant over what he has done. He's come to me. He acknowledged what he did. He's begged me for my forgiveness, said it never happened again. What should I do? I'm afraid that my response would be call off the wedding. Call off the wedding. It's not a question of whether he's repentant. It's a question of character. Repentance can happen in a moment. Character takes time to develop. He is not, at this time, trustworthy. Let's revisit this a year from now. Let's see how he conducts himself over the course of a year. He needs time to prove that he has the character, the maturity, the trustworthiness, the integrity to honor his vows. Because he's about to vow this day till death do his part. No other person but you. How can you believe that based upon his recent activity? So Bathsheba should have said, you know, I'm not questioning your sincerity. I'm not questioning your repentance. But Adonijah, I can't trust you. It's been too soon. It's been too soon. She should have brought other people in to get their opinion before she reached her own opinion about this. For all of us, it should just be a matter of practice. As, as it should just be as simple and, and, and natural to us as breathing. To cry out to God for wisdom every single day. Because we realize how far we are from it. It is a heart issue to say, God, I need your wisdom. We should constantly be seeking to learn wisdom, to acquire wisdom. This is the refrain of Proverbs over and over again, especially in the first nine chapters of Proverbs. Seek for wisdom as you would seek for it, seek for buried treasure. To constantly be looking for it, to, to be making yourself 
alert to wisdom. But here's the thing. You cannot, I believe, seek after wisdom without coming to Jesus. Because Jesus is the wisdom of God. It's one of the great things to direct a child to reading Proverbs is because if that child reads those verses, and I can remember it was the first book that I ever found to read after I'd received Christ at 10 years old, was Proverbs. And right early on it says, Seek wisdom as you would seek buried treasure. And as a 10-year-old boy, that resonated with me because I was always thinking about buried treasure. But I can remember telling God, I want to know you. I want wisdom. Well, what 10-year-old understands, if he's never been led to understand it, that Jesus is wisdom personified? God knows that, but the 10-year-old doesn't. Seek wisdom. And if that 10-year-old seeks wisdom, he will come into a deeper knowledge of Jesus himself. Because Jesus is the wisdom of God. We should constantly be searching his word while listening to his voice. But in all of life, just being, having an appetite, a desire, a longing, a craving even for wisdom. And as we obey God in what he reveals to us, the heart will grow in wisdom. Stop obeying God and you move into folly. Say yes to God and you move into wisdom. Not only do we need to seek for wisdom, understanding, and discernment, but we also need to understand and not take for granted we live in a hostile environment. I got off my shelf last night and read again what A.W. Tozer says. There's a chapter in one of his books called We Live in a Battleground, Not a Playground. Wonderful chapter. We are at war. And that's one of the good things that's happening around us today as we read the news every single day and read all the different ways that Christians are being attacked for their values. Um, we now have very clearly in front of us that we live in a hostile environment. We always have. Always have. It's just now the gloves are off and we can see things more clearly than we have before. Satan is the God of this world. God is sovereign, yes, but Satan is at work through all secular governments, through all institutions, all schools, all universities. They are not our friends. None of them. Satan is at work in every single secular government institution. They may look friendly. They may say they're on our side. They may pat us on the back and say, come to our PTA meetings. But we need to understand, this is a hostile environment. They may not have teeth bared, but they are not of the same kingdom we are. They are opposing kingdoms. We have to face the truth. That doesn't mean we become militant, belligerent, and certainly not violent. But we understand that these people are not moving in the same direction we are. We should not be so eager for peace and unity that we underestimate the nature and power of sin and evil. Sometimes we just so long for things to be okay, for things to be back to normal, that we're not willing to face the pure evil in front of us. 
we can be more desirous of peace and unity than is reasonable. We are not going to have full peace and unity on this earth. We're just simply not. Long for it, pray for it, but do not compromise with it. Shouldn't be lost on us or on Bathsheba that Adonijah made no request for reconciliation, did he? He didn't come to her and say, would you forgive me? I want things to be right again. What can I do? None of that was there. He came to her, flattered her, and, and wanted to simply get something for, from her for his own benefit. It shouldn't be lost on us that giving him what he wanted didn't help him or work for peace. It made the problem worse. And so many times people will say, if you would just do this, it will make everything right. And many times it's a lie. Giving Adonijah what he wanted would have made things much, much worse. Not better. We cannot appease evil. We cannot reason with evil. And we cannot compromise with it. Solomon was right to be angry. He knew exactly what was going on and saw it for what it is, pure evil. He also knew that his older brother wasn't clever enough to come up with this scheme on his own. He knew that Joab and Abathar had to be in cahoots with him. And in fact, they were. So Adonijah will be the first one to die. And then in verse 26, Abathar the priest is dismissed from being priest. The only reason he didn't kill him was because he had been a faithful priest at one time and had even carried the Ark of the Covenant. But then Joab is killed. That begins in verse 28. And again, he deserved to die. This was not vengeance on behalf of his father, Though his father had said, kill Joab, this is simply doing what needed to be done because this was a treacherous man who was more interested in his own agenda than he was in God's. He rightfully deserved to die. I wonder if he was also angry because he truly hoped for better. He could have killed Joab and Adonijah at his first opportunity as soon as he became king, but he didn't, which tells me that there was something in Solomon that says, I really want to believe that we can put this behind us and move forward. And so he was not quick to execute these men, far from it. But the next time they showed their true colors, he knew there can't be another time. This must stop. And there, we should not be too quick to cut people off. But, there, but many times as Christians, we wait too long. I know at His Hill, at Bible school, sadly there have been times throughout the years where we've had to send students home. You can do that too quickly. I get it. But you can also wait way too long. Way too long. And again, this is a place where we need God's wisdom and judgment of what is God saying? Is it time, Lord, to say no more. Dealing with these individuals here Solomon has 
has undoubtedly brought to mind for Solomon the other person that his dad mentioned that had to be dealt with, and that was Shimei. Dad said, kill Joab, and dad said, Kid, kill Shimei. And obviously, dad was right concerning Joab, so maybe dad's right concerning Shimei as well. So in verse 36, the king called Shimei to himself and said, build for yourself a house in Jerusalem and live there and do not go out from there to any place. For it will happen on the day that you go out and cross over the brook Kidron, you will know for certain that you will surely die. Your blood will be on your own head. Shimei then said to the king, the word is good. As my lord the king has said, so your servant will do. So Shimei lived in Jerusalem many days. This was not a hardship. It was a restriction. The king says, I'm going to put the law down on you. You're going to move to Jerusalem and you're going to stay here until the day you die. And if you ever leave, I'm going to kill you. Maybe this is where that famous quote came. The best place to have your enemy is near to you where you can see him. This was an insurrectionist type of man. He was a rebellious man, a man who who did not respect authority. And Solomon saying no better place to have him than where I can keep my eye on him. Move to Jerusalem and never leave. Well, that's not a hardship. Jerusalem is about to become the richest planet city on the planet. Everybody in the world is flooding into Jerusalem. To build a house at the beginning of Solomon's reign would be the, most, the best investment of your money you could ever make in your lifetime. And this man is old. He's probably in his 70s as well. He doesn't have that much longer to live. Anything he'd ever want to do is going to happen in Jerusalem. The world is coming. All the entertainment, all the intellectuals are all coming to Jerusalem. So why not? And he goes, yeah, I can do this. Not difficult. And he was a good boy for three years. Verse 39. And it came about at the end of three years that two of servants of Shimei ran away to Achish, son of Makkah, king of Gath. And they told Shimei, saying, Behold, your servants are in Gath. So Shimei arose and saddled his donkey and went to Gath to Achish to look for his servants. And Shimei went and brought his servants from Gath. This is just a business trip. That's all it is. It's not for pleasure. Not visiting family. Two servants ran away. He just says, just going to go straight there, straight back. Probably took less than a week. Could have been a day there, find his servants, day back, gone three days. No big deal. Three days gone after three years of obedience. We've all heard. It's easier to get permission. I mean, easier to get forgiveness than it is to get permission, right? Oh, my word. Can you imagine Jesus ever uttering that? Easier to get forgiveness than it is to get permission. But that seems to be the mindset of Shimei. I'll just do it. And I'll come back and say, I should have asked you. It's not a big deal. I didn't think you would mind. And it was told Solomon that Shimei had gone from Jerusalem to Gath and had returned. And the king sent and called for Shimei and said to him, did I not make you swear by the Lord and solemnly warn you, saying, You will know for certain that on the day that you depart and go anywhere, you shall surely die? And you said to me, The word which I have heard is good? Why then have you not kept the oath of the Lord and the command which I have laid on you? Then the king also said to Shimei, You know all the evil which you acknowledge in your heart, which you did to my father David. 
Therefore the Lord shall return your evil on your own head. But King Solomon shall be blessed, and the throne of David shall be established before the Lord forever. So King Solomon commanded Benaniah, the son of Jehoiada, and he went out and fell upon him so that he died. Thus the king, the kingdom was established in the hands of Solomon. Seems very strict. Was certainly uncompromising. Didn't get a second chance. One time, done. Don't you wish there was more of that? I knew an older fellow. He was a grandfather, and he lived on a, on a ranch as a caretaker. And whenever the grandkids visited, they loved to get on the golf cart that the ranch owned and just go flying all around the, the ranch. And he was good with it. But he said, if you ever abuse that golf cart, you, will, you get one chance. Not a second chance. Abuse that golf cart and you will never drive it again. And he looked out the window one day and he saw his teenage grandson catching air with that golf cart. Back down again. Come here. Do you remember me telling you that if you abuse this golf cart, you would never drive it again? Yes, sir. Did you just abuse the golf cart? Yes, sir. So you have no reason to complain now that your eight-year-old little sister is going to be driving the golf cart, but you are not. But, but just one time. That's what I said. One time. And so for the rest of that boy's growing up years, every time they're on the ranch, little sister's driving the golf cart, big football player, older brother has to sit and be driven around. Great lesson. We've gotten to a place in our schools and in our camps where we can't do anything when it comes to disciplining a child. We only have kids for five and a half days at His Hill. And you'd be amazed, the hardest kids for us to deal with are the ones that are being scholarship to come. Talk about a spirit of entitlement among some of those kids. And they're there for next to nothing. Didn't happen, but one of our counselors was falsely accused by a camper to her dad when she went home that she had been handled aggressively by one of our counselors, female counselor. Didn't even happen. Dad writes an email. That was an assault. You have no right to put your hand on my child. That is assault. Wow. That's the world we're living in. So I told our camp administrators, if anything were to happen like this again, where you have just belligerent kids, which is what they were, who will not respond to simple commands, you tell them, respond right now or I send you home. There will not be a second chance. We'll just send them home. And that's probably the best thing we can do for those kids and their parents is understand words, actions have consequences. One time, and you're out. That's it. Not a second chance. One time, and you're out. This is what this grown man is having to learn. He should have learned this much earlier in life. There's a reason why Shimei, probably in his 70s, has no respect for authority. That began at home. Solomon doesn't know where his heart is. How can he? The heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can understand it, Isaiah says. But I want to tell you, there are some ways that you can know what is in the heart 
of any person. Not infallibly, but you can have a real good idea. And the easiest way, look at how they respond to the rules and restrictions that are in their lives. This is what Solomon is doing. He puts one rule in this man's life. And he would know the heart of Shimei by how he responds to that rule, that restriction. This is why the Garden of Eden had a tree in it. Do not eat of the fruit of that tree. Because that was Adam's way of being able to say to God, I love you by obeying you. If, he, if he's going to obey him, if he's going to love him, then he has to obey him. And so that tree was a way to expose his heart. Every time he saw it and walked by, he's going, I love God. But the day that he ate of that, he was going, I love self. It exposed his heart. We had a student one year at his hill. Um, won't tell you all the background, just take too long, but he, he got really angry with me. And he decided I needed to die. Um, a staff member woke me up one night, and he was standing at my door, white as a sheet, and said, um, this guy came to me the night ago, asked for a gun so that he could come up to your house and kill you. I thought he was just joking. He came back tonight, asked for a different kind of gun so that he could make a bigger mess, so that when he kills you, Patsy would have to clean up the mess. And I'm thinking... I don't remember going to a class in seminary what to do when a Bible school student wants to kill you. I don't remember where to look in my Bible for what to do when somebody wants to kill you. I called him in the next morning. Obviously, I've been asking God for wisdom. I asked him if he had, in fact, done this, and he said yes, and he just laughed and said I was just kidding. And I said, well, you know, I could have you prosecuted for this. This is serious stuff. And then I got his parents on the phone, and uh, he was still sitting in my office and told them what had happened. Their first response was to laugh, and then said, I, I could have him prosecuted. So they sobered up. And I said, um, there's only three weeks left in the fall semester. I'm going to put two restrictions on your son. If he keeps them, he can come back in January, and I will never say another word about this. It's just forgotten. Breaks either one of them, and I will send him home immediately, and you will have a very expensive plane ticket. The two restrictions were that he couldn't say anything negative about me or another staff member for three weeks, and he could not have anything to do with any girl, and he was already in a relationship, and I was very concerned about that relationship. And the parents said, done, easy, he can do that. The student said, done, easy, thank you. I do not deserve this. Thank you for the second chance. So we walked over to the classroom, and I told the students, you don't need to know what's happened, but you do need to know that he's under two restrictions. And if he breaks either one of them, I'm going to send him home on the spot. No more than two or three days passed, and I had student after student coming down to my office and telling me, get him out of here now, including his own roommates. And so I did. The next day, I believe it was, Little knock on my door, open it up, girlfriend. She sits down in my office, and she's just bawling. 
And I figure she's mad at me. So I wait for her to compose herself and then, you know, lash out, but she didn't. She looked up through her tears and she says, I am here to thank you. Says anyone should have been able to keep those two restrictions. If you had sent him home when you first could have, I would have never believed that he is the kind of person that he is. But when he didn't keep those two restrictions, I saw him for what he is. You have protected me. You have spared me. Thank you. And I thought, this is a wise woman. She understands the issue is never the rules. The rules and restrictions are simply exposing what's in our hearts. I don't like saying that. Every time I say this, I get convicted over it. Because I react, I mean, you don't want to be around me when I'm driving. I don't know what, it's just, I, 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 my family doesn't like to be around, Patsy, you know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not proud of it. Restrictions, rules, boundaries, they reveal the heart. Jesus says in Matthew 15 that words come from the heart. We've all caught ourselves saying things that we wish we hadn't said. And then we come back to the person and say, please forgive me. I don't know where that came from. Lie. <laughs> you know exactly where it came from. And you may not have meant to say it. It may not have been the whole truth of everything that you think or feel. But Jesus says it came from your heart. It didn't come out of nowhere. Those words that we wish we could all take back came from our hearts. How we respond to crisis shows what we believe in our hearts. It was Tozer that said that the most significant thing about any person is what he believes in his heart to be true about God. But how do you know what you believe in your heart? Look at how you react in a crisis, and you will know what you believe about God. Not only how we respond to crisis reveals our hearts, but also how we respond to prosperity and to blessing. Do you really think you deserve it? When you are being blessed and prospered, do you really think it's because you deserve it? Because you've earned it? That reveals the heart. The scripture says every good thing comes from God. It is the grace of God. If I got what I deserve, I would never experience any blessing. And also, we see this throughout the Old Testament with Israel, and it's repeated over and over again in the New Testament. Thankfulness or grumbling reveal the heart. Israel was a grumbling people, reveals the heart. And throughout the New Testament, we're admonished to give thanks in all things. Give thanks for all things. 1 Thessalonians 5 says, in all things. Ephesians says, for all things. All of these things reveal the heart. Solomon was actually very wise. He gave Shimei every opportunity. Gave him the benefit of the doubt. Maybe this old man is a changed man. But by putting that restriction in his life, Shimei revealed that nothing had changed. 
he was still an independent, insolent, rebellious man with no respect for authority. And due to his age and influence, the kingdom could not be established as long as that man was around. And he had to go. And that's why the last statement of verse 30, 46, the kingdom was established in the hands of Solomon because the threats to the kingdom are gone. Sad thing is, chapter 3 starts out with Solomon marrying foreign women, in particular the daughter of Pharaoh. And the whole reason for that was to establish your kingdom. That's why these political alliances, these marriage alliances took place, was to make your kingdom firm. And there was never any reason for it, because God had established his kingdom. I'll close this in prayer. God, I thank you for your wisdom. Thank you for Jesus, who is the wisdom of God. We acknowledge, God, that we are fools apart from you. There's folly in each of our hearts. And you've also shed your love apart in our hearts. A love that believes all things and hopes all things. And at times, God, that just seems like a bad combination. Folly wed with love. And it does, Lord, drive us to you. And I pray that we would just increasingly, God, seek Jesus for his mind, his wisdom, thanking you that you have given us the very mind of God in Christ and that we would live in dependence upon you and we would embrace your thoughts and your ways and not put our own over yours. I pray that we'd be a simple, childlike people, that we would just accept, God, what you say in your word and not pass judgment on it or act as though we know better. We are your people, and you are wisdom itself. Thank you that you have not left us to live this life on our own. In Jesus' name, amen.